Hello and welcome to Shrinkwrapped, a podcast created specifically for psychiatrists to provide you with bite-sized insight from leaders in your field. My name is Arden Thomason. I am the CEO and founder of Thalamos, a company which creates bespoke software for psychiatrists. Our goal is to create the digital tools that you need to deliver the best possible care for your patients. This week's podcast is a phone conversation I had with Dr. David Rigby and Dr. Peter McRae, two North London psychiatrists and gamers who are combining their passions to explore and research the effects of technology on our mental health. Whilst there's a lot of discussion now about technology and mental health, there's remarkably little evidence. David and Peter discuss with me how they're trying to address this with their psych tech conference, as well as sharing their thoughts on social media, gaming, and virtual reality. I really hope you enjoy listening. Gents, good afternoon. Thank you very much for joining me. Perhaps to kick off, you could introduce yourselves. Yeah, hi. My name's Peter McRae. I'm a psychiatrist working for East London NHS Foundation Trust. My main clinical job is in primary care liaison, being in the GP practices, seeing patients at the other GP practices. And over the last few years, I've been developing an interest in mental health and technology. And so with myself and David, we've organizing a conference, first one last year, and we're organizing second psych tech conference for November. So my name is David Bigby. I'm a higher trainee. I work in general adult and older adult psychiatry and I'm working now in uh, Wolfram Forest doing an older adult job. And like Peter, I also have a special interest in uh, mental health and technology, which I've been trying to expand upon in, in, in the last couple of years, but mo- mostly through this conference, PsychTech. So PsychTech, I was lucky enough to go to the uh, inaugural PsychTech conference last year. You held it, I think, with North East London foundation trust it was fantastic by the way but how did you both decide to host such a conference why what was the genesis of it so when i was working for nelf a year ago i I took a year out of my training to do uh, what we call an up that stands for out of program experience and i was working as another acronym for you as an fme which is a fellow in medical education which is based on experience where for four days a week for one year i was not doing clinical work and i was essentially doing teaching and training with medical students interested in psychiatry but also with doctors and nurses and part of that i was sort of allowed to pursue various interests and and an interest i've I've always had is, is technology obviously also mental health as well and my boss, the director of medical education in NELF, was very kind to essentially give me some money to, to get us going. And I actually knew Peter from being involved in a previous conference. He did a, a seminar uh, about gaming. So I invited him to co-lead for the conference. Yeah, my, my, my memory is that you'd seen me do that presentation on, on gaming and uh, then offered me the opportunity to come to do last year's conference. And at that point, I decided to sort of sidle up to you and ask if I could be more directly involved with it because it sounded really interesting. So I think I just kind of gradually got more involved from there, didn't I? Yeah, that, that is true. I, actually, I think exactly. <laughs> it, you, I think we've made it sound more coordinated and organized than it actually was. I think I, just sort of, I was just like, well, could I? Yeah, okay, great. Uh, so, so yeah, I think the the idea for this year is to expand on, on last year's scope and, and, and try and clarify what, what we want it to be about. We've got an idea that we want it to be sort of the ethical NHS view on mental health and technology, you know, looking at the evidence base, trying to avoid so some of the kind of moral panic that can come with new technologies and then trying to 
create some content that will be like interesting and relevant to people that are they're interested in technology but not dedicating their careers to technology at the moment or, or yet so kind of trying to make it fairly affordable and accessible keeping the ticket price low enough that students and trainees will feel that it's something that they can afford to come to um, and that people will find a few things a kind of reasonably broad selection of stuff that's culturally interesting and also some stuff that's kind of specifically clinically relevant Last year, I recall, you had a segment on gaming. There was a segment on applications, clinical applications. There was a segment on virtual reality, I believe. Is it, are you planning on having a similar breakdown this year, or are you thinking it's going to be perhaps broader or narrower? What's the focus in terms of the, the day? Yeah, it'll be fairly broad. And I think we'll definitely want things like screen time and social media use and video games and stuff that piques a more general interest. And then I think we'll want to do things that are more directly clinical, like um, internet gaming disorders become an ICD-10, um, WHO classification, the use of technology for assessment and treatment, things around the use of AI and machine learning and data and also into kind of thinking like if people come to the conference and they're interested in technology and they're encountering stuff for the first time, they're they're enthusiastic about like, how could you try and build this into a career going forward? What Who could you connect with? What could you do next? So trying to make it a forum for, for opportunity for people to, to meet up. Uh, ideally, we'd really like to get people from the tech sector kind of directly involved in the conference coming in so that you can kind of, so we can use it as a way of, kind of establishing connections and then maybe some innovative stuff comes out of it directly. The other group of people we would like to speak at the conference who didn't really have last year is, for want of a better word, kind of service users, people who, I guess, through the use of computer games, either by playing them or some, sometimes creating their own content based on their own experiences of mental illness and, and sort of how they've used essentially the, the medium of gaming to sort of help with their mental health. Because obviously the main narrative that you hear about gaming is that it's you know, dangerous for mental health, that you know, we're overusing it, that you know, obviously talking about addiction as well and its links to violence and, and also just giving, I guess, a more nuanced and balanced view and just showing how gaming can be used for the good as well in terms of mental health. One of the things I found very interesting about the conference last year, you had a chat there from The Guardian, who I was also speaking with about the use of gaming in certain disciplines. I think he had an autistic son. Is that right? Is yeah, there a certain so Keith Stewart, who used to, uh, was the kind of former games editor at The Guardian, and he wrote a book called Boy Made of Blocks about the way that, that he and his son uh, playing Minecraft or kind of him becoming involved in his son's passion for Minecraft was a way that he kind of connected and, and, and got a more of an understanding of his son's experience and the kind of the nature of his son's cystic spectrum disorder um, and how he could feel a better father, really. So it was, that was a really interesting talk. And I think it was, you know, I saw on social media after that, that he was kind of following up with that and people were communicating with him and he was sharing some of the content. So I, that kind of stuff, I, I really enjoyed it. Yeah. I'd also, I was just reading The Guardian recently, and Minecraft, the game that he was using at this time, has just recently turned 10. So uh, he'd written an article about his sort of influence in a wider community, but also wrote about how console that he's played with his son on maybe an old PlayStation, where he's kept he's kept it because the first thing that son created, which is a sort of higgledy-piggledy house that he built on Minecraft. And uh, yeah, it was, a, it was a pleasure to, to, to read the article. And he's, it's something that still him and his son are uh, sort of enjoying together. One of the other speakers, I think, that you mentioned briefly was around uh, addictions. So we had um, 
sort of a, a national leading kind of research expert come in and talk to us about behavioral addictions and the relevance of the category of behavioral addictions to video games, social media, technology use. And, and I think for, for a lot of these subjects, I mean, spoilers to some extent, but there is very limited evidence for harms for any evidence around addiction, any evidence around violence. You know, so I, I think one of the things that we want to do is to to bring in experts to be able to present the current evidence and to kind of provide a balanced view on these these things aren't going to be a hundred percent safe forever. We need to think about, you know, we need to be cautious for people perhaps with who might be more vulnerable to the effects than others, but also not to overreact, not to jump to conclusions and not to be too alarmist about things when actually there isn't that much evidence that uh, any of these things are immediately or significantly harmful. But you must get asked about things like social media and its effect on, on mental health. How do you currently answer those questions with a lack of evidence? For somebody like me, it seems commonsensical that social media would have a negative effect on mind, somebody else's mental well-being. But the evidence isn't there. So how do you answer that question? I'm actually involved in a, a small project with a medical student who's sort of interested in this topic as well. And one of the things that we, we basically did a survey of psychiatrists, four different specialities, to see you know, when we're sort of seeing new patients, are we asking about social media usage? And we were particularly interested in child psychiatrists because most likely going to be coming across people using social media more. And I think it's probably one of those things where it's potentially a generational thing where we as psychiatrists not really asking very much about social media usage, where I think it is very important. I mean, my, my feeling with social media is sort of similar to, to really all forms of technology where it has the potential for both you know, benefit and harm. I mean, harm in terms of you're much more visible to other people, much more open to ridicule or abuse from, from people you've never met, you know, a huge proportion of the population. So that's the potential for harm at a sort of vulnerable age, but there's a potential for, for benefits as well. I mean, people who may have been isolated, who might find it difficult to make friends or have maybe fairly niche interests or live in you know, isolated communities, have the opportunity through social media to, to meet other like-minded people. And that you know could have a, a positive impact on mental health. So I, I think, again, it's one of those things where there's potential for both. But again, in, in, the, in the sort of media, the, the narrative that we're hearing is generally that it's you know, deleterious for, for people's mental health, especially younger people. I mean, I think in part, it, it's about kind of being aware of the, as David was saying, of the potential positives and the potential negatives and not jumping to generalizations and thinking about the individual and the particular situation that you're talking about. So if, if, if someone, I, I, I don't have a, a, a good sort of well-researched, rehearsed answer for social media use. I might have a better one after the conference if we can get somebody to come in and tell me about it. But I think it's generally, as, as David was saying, kind of for most forms of technology, it's, it's being kind of thoughtful about the potential benefits, the potential negatives, and then you know, given the limited evidence, bring, always bringing it back to, well, what are we actually talking about? What, what situation are you actually describing? Are you talking about a particular uh, in person or a particular app or, you know, actually thinking through the, the, the kind of the consequences of the specifics of, of what somebody's asking about? And how do you think psychiatrists should engage with social media? Do you think it's your responsibility to hunt out the evidence as to whether it's positive or negative or to hunt out ways in which to make it a positive or to understand where controls need to be placed on it? How do you see your role? 
I, I would say that social media is essentially an ever more increasingly important part of society and, and therefore as psychiatrists we, we need to be more involved in it because it's, it's here to stay so we need to, to be more involved in and, and uh, maybe even try and uh, sort of influence how these things develop and perhaps raise awareness of those kind of corners of social media that are so particularly beneficial or suitable for the people with mental health problems for for example, going back to Minecraft again and, and what Kishut, the video game that is The Guardian, was talking about uh, last year's conference. In, in Minecraft, again, it's a sort of a place where you sort of meet other people online and again, you could be open to abuse potentially. And uh, they've made a sort of separate server for people with conditions like autism where essentially there's, you know, stricter controls and who can, uh, and who can say what. And generally speaking, people are much more sort of positive and kind to people rather than being abusive. We are psychic psychiatrists have a role in kind of showing that there are these aspects to social media usage, not just these sort of big platforms of Twitter and Facebook, but, but also looking more deeply and seeing, you know, is there evidence actually that social media is is harmful? And and if so, you know, providing, I guess, would, would be appropriate guidance to, to parents, to, to young adults about its usage and, and just, again, being part of that narrative in, in the media. Essentially, that's right. I think I think we do have professional responsibility if we have a platform and if we have an opportunity to sh- shape the, the culture and the conversation that is happening anyway. Then, if if we have an opportunity to you know express that there is a balanced view and that it isn't a one sided argument, and if you see a one sided argument happening, then try, trying to balance that trying to appropriately represent what is potentially useful and potentially negative about it. I think I think that that should be part of our sort of public health role. And then I think these things may cause tensions for patients within families. So I think having some knowledge of it so that if it comes up in day-to-day clinical work, it might you know, it might be one thing uh, as part of a kind of wider assessment that you could do usefully for somebody to, to kind of quell particular concerns or to point out what somebody might do that would be one extra factor that would help with their, with their mental health. So social media dominates quite a lot of the media discourse around technology and mental health, but there's some super exciting things that I've been seeing coming through on a, on a clinical side. I donned a headset the other day to go to the top of a building and walk on a rope bridge between two buildings, to, uh, which was designed <laughs> to help people overcome fears of mm. heights, which was an interesting experience. But virtual reality certainly is, is an interesting thing that's coming through. What technologies are most excite you uh, from a treatment perspective of mental health? Well, I, I would actually say virtual reality uh, for me is something, I mean, how I got interested in it myself is that I'm a fairly big fan of gaming myself and I, I got a virtual reality headset about 18 months ago and just absolutely loved it and was completely blown away by how realistic or at least how it sort of fooled your mind is fooled. One of the things I was doing is using a kind of Google Maps in 3D and sort of flying around London and yeah, I, I'm just amazed how, how, how far the technology has come on. And then through that, just started doing a little bit of uh, looking around and a lot of research. And there's many applications in, in mental health. And I think there's something about because you're, even though the, the, the graphics aren't particularly good at this stage of that, but it's improving year on year. The, the tracking of the movements is extremely realistic. I, I mean, I certainly felt when I was flying around London that, for example, tried to fly into the shard and I, I felt afraid. Um, and I've seen other people are using these sort of fear of height stats as well in uh, programs and, and being afraid to, to walk a plank or whatever it might be. And I think there's something about that kind of sense of realism that is makes VR sort of tailor-made for 
uh, use in sort of treating mental health problems. Maybe Peter might talk about this a little bit more, but both he and I are writing an article for the British Journal of Psychiatry, due to be published fairly soon, about this very topic, virtual reality and, and mental health. And uh, there are many examples, perhaps I'll just mention one of them of its usage. One of them is, is using VR for treatment of uh, paranoia. The example would be that person with uh, paranoid thoughts with Don and on the, the VR headset and they are put into I think uh, like a, a, a sort of experience like going to a library or a, a shopping mall and they're walking around and sort of seeing various people who are sort of having neutral expressions obviously you know virtual reality characters and they're sort of asked about their their thoughts and feelings towards these people and whether they're feeling paranoid and, and using that as essentially part of psychological therapy. But there are examples of how VR is being used in diagnosis of dementia. And again, as you as you say, probably the most well-known is for uh, treatment of phobias, heights, spiders, dogs, and, and things like PTSD. So for me, that, that's the most interesting uh, application and for mental health and technology. Yeah, and I, and I guess following on from that, um, there have been the three people that we've kind of focused on that have been good enough to talk to us for the article. One was Professor Daniel Freeman, who uh, leads at uh, Oxford University and Oxford VR, and they're, they're doing a lot of this kind of automated VR therapy work where you're immersed and you meet with a kind of virtual coach and you go through scenarios and you learn techniques to manage anxieties. And perhaps those anxieties might be more related to persecutory thoughts about other people's intention and something that might be more paranoid or they might be more direct to do with anxiety and mood. That, that, that genuinely feels really exciting. And there are other things that I, I hadn't before writing this study that I'd ever even really considered. We spoke to Dr. Dennis Chan, who's a researcher in, in Cambridge, who's, who's researching the use of VR for assessment of early Alzheimer's dementia. And as I say, one of the things that hadn't occurred to me before was that the power of VR to be able to demonstrate cognitive ability in a way that sitting in front of somebody with clinical assessments can't do, the way that you can recreate what is much more like a, a real world scenario, like the actual activities that somebody would be doing in order to demonstrate if there are any difficulties with somebody's cognition, be able to spot an even earlier stage if someone might be developing cognitive problems and early Alzheimer's. That kind of use of, of a technology to actually essentially trump all of the current assessments that we've got is very exciting. The other main person that we spoke to was Ross O'Brien, one of the leads at the Grenfell Health and Wellbeing Service. So after the um, Grenfell fire, there were a lot of support services necessarily put in there to help people affected and in the area and try to find people, uh, try to kind of make contact with people who'd experienced trauma and, and offer them support and engage them. And one of the things that they'd done was use the novelty of VR and the enticement of VR on the street to engage people in that initial conversation, which could then lead on to kind of offering people assessment and, and, and further support. So there is, there is also something about VR is just quite an exciting thing. So it's actually something that people might be more willing to try. So if, it, if it's a therapy or if it's an assessment or if it's just a way of meeting people, it might be that the novelty of VR gets somebody into the room to, to start that process of offering them support and treatment. That's interesting. It was fun. It has to be said. It was yeah. very weird, but it is fun. And uh, it was actually Daniel Freeman's team that were putting on the presentation that I was at. If you're a younger doctor, psychiatrist, looking to bring VR and similar technologies into your practice. How do you how do you go about that? I would say there are there are multiple different applications, there are VR applications knocking around, but actually there's very little evidence base. You can actually you can purchase one of these. Uh, you know, like for example, the, the ones that Russ O'Brien uh, are using Oculus Go is around about two hundred pounds. Junior psychiatrists are often looking for 
research projects, I think it's a real opportunity to essentially pick up one of these uh, headsets or one of these kind of programs that have been developed. So something actually I was looking into myself is, uh, again, going to people with dementia. There are quite a few different apps out there. VR programs where people, you know, companies will go into a care home and you stick on a VR headset and then you have an experience such as uh, being on the beach or there's another company where they'll sort of ask what town you're from and then try and recreate some of the uh, experiences from that town, a sort of reminiscence therapy. And I was just looking to see, you know, I wonder if there's any evidence, perhaps could it help with mood or maybe reduction in use of medication and maybe reduction in challenging behaviours. And I had a look, and there's just very little evidence. A small amount of evidence to say that essentially VR isn't dangerous for people, say, with dementia, but because you don't have to use, say, a keyboard or a mouse, the controls are much more intuitive. You're looking around, you're, you're pointing and pressing at things that sort of in the, in the virtual world, but it's much easier for people with uh, dementia to use. And there's a, a one or two studies that show that if you ask if they enjoyed it, they will say, Yes, they did. But I couldn't actually find anything to say, you know, does this actually reduce things like aggression or, you know, sort of use production of, uh, you know, medication with significant side effects. So I think any junior psychiatrist out there could purchase a couple of headsets and, and do, uh, you know, a small uh, scale trial. So I, I would encourage any junior doctor to, to give that a go. And, and I think on a, in a more general way, I'd, I'd encourage junior doctors to do something that I've always been terrible, uh, which is just to kind of identify something that you find interesting and then go out and actually a- approach people that are working in that field and, and say, can I be can I, can I be part of your project or can I help you do whatever you, it is you're focusing research? So that could be VR, it could be screen time, social media, video games, it could be particular apps for, for therapy or assessment. But, but I think just I think there's so much going on and there's such, such a need for a better evidence base that there are a lot of opportunities if you just make that first step, make contact with people, see what the options are and just offer your time. I think that could really lead on special interests and, and careers for people. I mean, I think I know one answer, which will be Psych Tech 2019. But where do people go to, to find those other people? Where do they go to seek out those opportunities? I think definitely universities. I think universities are, are often a lot better than trusts in advertising what they're doing with incubators and op- opportunities to to pitch ideas and opportunities to get involved in ongoing research. I think our trust is is, is also doing that kind of thing. So so there will be trusts that are interested as well. It's not outrageous to be having a look on the internet for things that you find interesting and then tracking down the people that you see featured in articles or in research papers or just getting in contact and and asking if there's anything that you could do. And in your experience, people are quite receptive to that. Yeah, people people love to talk about what they're doing. Generally speaking, I, again, I you know you sort of you 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 feel really hesitant to approach people. You wor- you're worried that you're going to be wasting their time, that you're going to annoy them. But that's almost never what really happens. Usually, people are absolutely delighted to be asked about what they're up to and to have the opportunity to talk about it. I was just going to say, and, and just to briefly talk about the the, the conference. And one of, one of the reasons why I think it's so useful is that, as far as we know, I think it's the only conference of its kind that is specifically sort of clinician-focused, looking at you know, psychiatry or mental health and technology. And one of the experiences that I found as a psychiatrist interested in technology is that there are often a lot of kind of experiences out there for those people, say, interested in, in arts or philosophy, the, the kind of you know that that kind of the side of things in relation to to mental health, but fewer uh, sort of experience in terms of conferences or away days for technology. So when 
you offer these kind of experiences, there tend to be quite quite a high level of interest. And then lots of kind of follow-up emails at the, the sort of the, the VR things I was telling you about before. Um, we've sort of presented about them at sort of local teaching sessions. And there's always a case where there's three or four people who are just email saying, wow, that sounds really interesting. If you're doing any work on the project, please let me know. I'd, I'd love to be involved. So I think you know, having, a, having a yearly conference, I think, will, will help. Or to have maybe smaller, more regular events is getting people together with a similar interest in technology and mental health. That's how we'll raise awareness and, and help sort of junior doctors, junior psychiatrists get, get involved in this topic. Thanks very much. You talked about raising awareness. Mental health, mental ill health has hugely moved up the national agenda, rightly so, over the last few years. Prince William and Harry have now started talking about it with their heads together as well. Have you noticed this increase in public awareness having an effect on the psychiatric profession itself? So I, I think it's yeah, it's incredibly positive, and I think there has been a significant change in the last few years in terms of levels of, of awareness. And I think Heads Together is moving on to addressing stigma and addressing uh, the availability of support. So not not just increasing awareness, but actually helping people to make contact, to access support, and for that support to actually to be there. So n- not just kind of making people aware without the opportunity to, to do something about it. I think in parallel to that, there is a kind of a, an increase in the cultural awareness within the profession that, that we need to be part of that, you know, that we need to be advocates, um, that we need to be kind of more explicitly involved in, in public health, population health, taking a role in, in, in kind of being present in the media yeah, I, I remember actually it wasn't too long ago when I was doing my membership exams for the Royal College and I can't remember the exact numbers now as but I do remember sort of learning the figures where, you know, roughly fifty percent of people with uh, mental health problems will never see their GP just sort of presumably getting by in the community and then a smaller proportion still will see a psychiatrist. So I think anything where you can increase that proportion of people, those I say, you know, maybe it's fifty percent of people with uh, mental health problems who are never really seeking help. Anything which can do that, I think, is is going to be benefit to psychiatry as well, but to uh, the general public at, at large. Yeah, and I think it's also about recognizing the importance of the kind of social determinants of health, and not not just psychiatry recognizing that they have a role in in supporting people through communicating with social services, the voluntary sector, with working together to actually provide more general support for people's lives that can bring that overall benefit. So we have a very specific role, and there are people with kind of serious illnesses that that we need to see to help them find the the support and treatment that they need. But there's also a broader role for us in in doing something more about the social support and structure around people. And do you see technology being able to play a role in that side of what you do? Yeah, I was at a presentation this week by NHS Digital where they were they were presenting work that they've done about co-produced user-led community hubs where the, the main focus is a, is a communal space and the, there's a kind of the digital part of it is a bit covert. Really don't mention the digital bit and sort of trying to do that by stealth in some ways in order to not put people off because they're so integrated into culture and becoming so more ubiquitous year on year that supporting people with access and and not having disparity and not excluding people if because the more important technology becomes the more possible it is that that some people will be excluded if they're not supported to access digital technology that's one thing that we can do is create kind of community spaces that are accessible and that are supportive in helping people 
use technology uh, and engage with technology. It's it's a means of directly accessing support. You know, at the NHS is trying to move towards digital means and, and apps for directly accessing support and for directly accessing therapies. So we need to be able to to help bring those to to people that that need it. Yeah. Just just to add to that, I think when generally speaking, people's first episode of mental illness tends tends to be in early adulthood or, or adolescence, and that also tends to be a time where you're sort of more likely to be using technology, uh, social media, and I think there's the proportion of people where maybe afraid to go and see a psychiatrist or, or their GP, but they're spending hours and hours using social media or, or the, you know technology. I think that's perhaps where I could see potential for psychiatry in the future is, is that actually going into those spaces such as social media or other uh, other technology platforms to bettering so patients who maybe have social anxiety may not want to uh, leave the house maybe we can be doing consultations with them online there has been some talk of telepsychiatry you know doing consultations in VR or online uh, through a webcam Um, so that might actually help us engage with uh, a group of people who may not actually come down to the surgery and although it's probably not relevant for most parts of the UK this could be particularly useful in countries like uh, Australia, Canada, where they have remote communities where I would imagine a psychiatrist might cover, you know, hundreds, if not, you know, thousands of square miles where, you know, you'd be able to access these, these patients much more easily through the use of cheap VR headset or even more simply uh, a webcam. The two largest apps out there are Calm and Headspace. Do you see them as having a role to play in reaching the perhaps harder to reach? The, the difficulty with a lot of apps out there is coming back to the evidence base of, of how effective they are. I'm sure there are a lot of people that are using Headspace and similar apps and getting benefit from them, learning techniques, them being an easy part of their life that help them support mindfulness and so on. I think the danger is we don't really know how useful that is. And there's a possibility that somebody might be diverted from seeking more useful therapy or useful evidence-based treatment if what they do is rely on apps that are not effective, but they think, well, I've sought some sort of support and help, so I'll, I'll, that, that's as far as I'll go. I, th- I think the NHS has a responsibility to sort of curate uh, an apps library to present an evidence base so that people can know which apps they should use, which apps are actually likely to be effective for them. I'm not aware of a particularly strong evidence base for those two apps, not to say that they can't be helpful, but I think we need to try and be as specific as possible in saying these are the ones that have evidence they work, so go to these ones first. And the NHS has been working on that for a few years now and we're still not there I think the NHS apps library is, is still in beta and its selection is still quite limited. But again, it comes back to what David was saying earlier on is we just we need to be putting a lot more effort into creating an evidence, reliable evidence base that we can then use to kind of inform and direct people towards the ones that actually work. And just speaking more broadly about uh, technology, what, one of the, the things that I'm actually, I mean, you know, we're talking about how we're sort of big proponents of uh, the use of technology and mental health, but one concern with I've had and people have said to me that in a in a sort of environment where we're facing cuts to the NHS and particularly to mental health, fewer doctors, more more patients, so on and so forth, where we don't substitute real life experiences or doctor patient contact with something that artificial and potentially less beneficial. Uh, give, give an example when I was talking about these uh, virtual reality experiences for people in care homes, and it sounds really 
positive and, and to me I think it's positive too where people who may not have been outside or may not have been to say the beach get to sort of have a similar experience and you know they may not have done that for for years when I did this talk generally got a positive response one of my colleagues a consultant psychiatrist said he was horrified by it because you know he imagined a sort of future where you know rather than taking your residents out for a walk or a day down to the beach no problem, just stick on the uh, VR headset. You know, rather than seeing your psychologist for CBT, you can have online or, or VR CBT. So I think, again, with, with technology, there's the danger for overuse or replacing doctors and nurses and psychologists. Um, so that's one thing I think that the NHS in general has to be uh, cautious of. And really, we should only be using these technologies if there's good, again, we're coming back to it again, there's good evidence that it works, it's, it's beneficial for uh, diagnosing and treating mental health problems. I'd obviously second that. And I, and I think it's new technologies, they're kind of exci- exciting to quite a lot of people, quite alluring. And there is a danger that people could say, look at these new technologies we've implemented, look over here at the, these shiny things, don't look at the gaps we've got in actual people on the front line providing care. So th- th- there is a risk that technologies could distract from the kind of essential direct human contact that's core to psychiatry and, and all, all mental health services. So, you know, there's a balance. And, and again, coming back to needing to make sure that if we're implementing a technology, that it's one that works and that has an evidence base. Excellent. It does sound like follow the evidence uh, and more research, it seems as well, is the key. And not getting ahead of the research, you know, just because we're enthusiastic, we shouldn't jump too far ahead of what we can actually say works. Excellent. Well, thank you very much, Jen. It's been fascinating to listen to you both and talk about your perspectives in um, technology and mental health. To finish up, so Psych Tech, have we got a, have we got a date for Psych Tech just yet? Uh, so we're planning for the 23rd of November, which I think will be locked down this very coming week. Once you have a date set and everything else, how will people sign up to come? So we have a website, psychtech.uk, information and tickets uh, will be directly through there. Um, and we'll be looking to kind of be present in people's training programs so that they can hear about us and things like this podcast, looking for opportunities where somebody might hear about this that we wouldn't otherwise have been able to get in touch with. So the website will have all the most up-to-date information and will be the the best way to just quickly book tickets. Thank you very much. And lastly, it's a slightly silly question, but it's one that we ask everybody, what is it that you two do to de-stress and de-work and uh, look after your own well-being? Uh, I, I think if you asked me this question a few weeks ago, I'd have said playing computer games, which <laughs> probably is not that surprising considering what we've what we've talked about. And you know, people when you think of gaming, thinking of uh, taking down some enemy soldiers, but often like the kind of games that I play are uh, much more kind of chill, relaxing games where <clears throat> after a, after a day of work can be quite quite calming. But as we were saying before the podcast, um, my my wife's just given birth to uh, a baby boy, so it's quite possible that my my sort of gaming hours are going to reduce. The Significantly in the coming months, so I'm, I'm uh, you know, I, I think it's going to be uh, childcare, which is going to be the thing to, to de-stress for me for foreseeable future, at least. Anyway, probably just move it into the kind of 2 a.m. to 6 a.m. slot and uh, <laughs> keep going. Is that what you but, do? Um, uh, I, I mean, yeah. So I've tried it and it doesn't work, but I don't think you should give up on it. <laughs> I, I mean, I, I do like to play video games occasionally. I, I think for me, de-stressing is often just about trying to find a bit of quiet time to do something creative, which sounds a, sounds a bit cliche, but just quiet time to, to, to make something or write something or, yeah. 
Well, gents, thank you ever so much. I really appreciate your time, and um, hopefully uh, everybody listening has uh, has enjoyed this as well. It's been a fascinating insight, Gio. I imagine we could carry on the conversation uh, much longer. Certainly, you've got at least a day's worth of content uh, coming out of it in PsychTech in a few months, and obviously, I assume you'd be happy to talk to people interested in, in learning a bit more about that. Oh, we'd be delighted to. Yeah, yeah. So if anybody wants to get in touch over the next few months, wants to kind of be be part of, uh, of the preparations for, for it, wants to think about providing kind of content for the day, wants to come along, yeah, just please get in touch. That would be that'd be great. Thank you very much for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. And if you did, that you'll share us with your colleagues. We're also always interested in your feedback, in particular if you think there are topics we should be covering in the near future. Please just drop me an email at arden.thalamos.co.uk. Our next episode will be out in a fortnight. We look forward to speaking with you again then.